0: the book of Nehemiah, so you might want to read through that here in the next week or two in regard to preparing for this next sermon series, Uh, but I would encourage each and every one of you to be there. By the way, um, how many of you know a single parent? Good. Well, listen, we have Single Parent Care Day coming up. Steve already announced it, but Brenda has the invitations. This is by invitation only. Uh, you give an invitation to that single parent that you know, they respond, and then they can come on July the 20th to, to be a part of this wonderful day, but we only have a limited number of invitations. So if you haven't gotten one for that special single parent yet, do so today. I'm sure Brenda will help you out, out, the, out at the Welcome Center if you need one. So turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter number 8, the Gospel of John chapter number 8, and this is a very familiar story that I'm going to share with you from Scripture this morning as we close out this sermon series that we've entitled Fans or Followers, and I've entitled this closing message, I Don't Want to Be a Pharisee, John chapter number 8. Actually, you need to, for the context, you need to, need to go back to, to verse number, well, let's just start. We'll just start with verse 1. They each went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. These Pharisees that brought this woman to Jesus. we a constant thorn in Jesus' side, it seemed like, during his entire earthly ministry. But the truth about Pharisees is that they were a group of people whose heart desire was to, to please God by honoring all the rules. Now, we talked a couple of weeks ago about following the rules versus following Jesus. I want to be one that follows Jesus. Amen. Because I, I, I'm i not any good at keeping all the rules. Some of them I can't even remember. But what was it about this group of people that we call Pharisees that, that got under Jesus' skin so often? And how do we avoid becoming like them? I don't know that I've ever heard anyone call this, but I've heard of people who, who said of others that They were a Pharisee. Now, I don't know of anything worse that you could be called in a church than be called a Pharisee. Uh, They were the bad guys in Scripture. They seemed to always be this this main group, as I said, that that Jesus would single out as examples of who his followers were not to be like. So, if Jesus doesn't want uh, those of us who are his followers to be like Pharisees, I don't want to be a Pharisee, right? And I don't think you do either. So so here's the bad news. According to Scripture, if we're not careful, we can become just like the Pharisees were. Found a list of danger signs to know whether or not you've become a modern-day Pharisee. I'll just share a few with you. The first one, you might be a Pharisee if everyone outside your immediate circle and most within it are wrong. Let that sink in a little bit. You might be a Pharisee if God's still small voice sounds exactly like yours. You might be a Pharisee if you know the Word of God, but you don't know the God of the Word. See, back in the days of Jesus, these were the bad guys. And Jesus was always upset with this group of people that we call Pharisees, and I Again, I don't want Jesus upset with me, amen. I want to be a follower of Jesus. I I want to, as we talked about last week, pick up my cross daily and follow him because here's my goal. You've heard it before. I want Jesus to look at me on the day of judgment and say, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to do what Jesus wants me to do while I'm still here, amen. The Pharisees of Jesus' day had started out as a group wanting to please God. They, they originated clear back in the Old Testament. And they were a sect that began in a day when, when Israel, the nation of Israel, was tainted with, with immorality and unrighteousness. And, and the nation really needed someone to stand in the gap so that they would remain God's chosen people. The Pharisees were the ones who stepped up to fill that need. And in that era where where many Jews had abandoned all the Ten Commandments, all of the laws of God, the Pharisees, they they became kind of like prophets to the people of Israel. And they, they pointed people back not only to the law of Moses, but obedience to the will of God. Their deepest desire was to obey every one of God's commandments to the letter. And if God, the problem was that if God wasn't clear enough on what he wanted them to obey, they started creating a whole bunch of new commands so that they'd make sure they didn't miss anything. So much so that by the end of the New Testament, and I'm never sure on the exact number of this, but I can give you a ballpark figure, instead of just the Ten Commandments, they were demanding that everyone follow 680-some commandments. That's how many were added too. And as I've said many times, I couldn't even remember 680. How about you? And they knew that. They knew that not everyone could obey every one of those commandments, so they had become a very exclusive group of people. As a matter of fact, they looked down their noses at anyone who wasn't doing as good a job of obeying all those rules as they were. And then Jesus came along. And and Jesus began to see some things in their lives that pointed to their hypocrisy. And, and as I read about Pharisees, they were the equivalent of what we know to be many modern day churchgoers, churchgoers who want to, to please Jesus. They were the religious people of the day, they took their faith very, very seriously. But here's the problem. And it was a problem then, and it's still a problem now. Anytime that people take their faith seriously, they can step over the line from pleasing God into disobedience by becoming like a Pharisee, and we need to be careful that we don't do that as well. Again, let me stress, the Pharisees didn't set out to to make God angry. It wasn't like they woke up every morning saying, I'm going to make Jesus mad today. That's not what they were doing. Uh, they, were, they made him angry, but not because they, they, weren't, they were trying to do their very best. And, and their very best had gotten them so tied up that they, they couldn't accept people who were hurting, much like many of us. So why, what had they gotten so wrong that made Jesus furious with them? Well, my message for today points out three of the traps that warped the Pharisees' thinking and traps that can make us like modern-day Pharisees. I'll give them all to you first, and then I'm going to come back and talk about each one of them. The first one is that rules became more important than people. The second one is that their agenda became God's agenda, at least in their own minds. And the third one is they believe that their personal sins could be covered up as long as they kept their rules. So again, let me take each one of them in order, and we'll talk about them. The first trap, as I said, that warped the minds of the Pharisees was that they saw their rules as being really important, and in so doing, people became unimportant. You see, when the Pharisees brought this adulterous woman to Jesus that we read of in John chapter number 8... They didn't care about this woman. A rule had been broken and in their minds this woman needed to be exposed as a rule breaker. And the reality is they didn't even have any intention of stoning her as they said. She's just a prop for something much bigger that they're wanting to accomplish. And uh, You see, even if they'd wanted to stone her they couldn't because they were under Roman rule and only Rome could give a, a death order. And so... Uh, You you only have to look at the crucifixion of Jesus to see that. Whose approval did the Pharisees and and, and the teachers of the law need in order to have Jesus hung on the cross? Remember, they had to go to Pilate, the Roman governor, to get his permission. And and so, in verses 3 through 5, we're told that they brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, speaking to Jesus... Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? Now, with that question, they reveal what their true intentions were. When, they, when the Pharisees brought this woman to Jesus, again, she's only a tool. She's an object lesson that they were wanting to use in order to get at Jesus because their hatred of Jesus is what is driving them at this point in time. And then verse 6 says exactly what they were doing. They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So let me break down the entire scenario for you. The Pharisees were right in their accusation of this woman. She had been caught in adultery. The law of Moses did decree that she should die. And every Jewish rabbi, including Jesus, knew that. So if he was truly a rabbi, he would have known that the penalty for a woman being taken in the act of adultery was to take her outside of the city gates and stone her to death. But like I said earlier, when, Roman, when the Romans conquered Israel, they took the power to execute wrongdoers away from the Jewish leaders. So in order to punish sinners, Jews had to get permission So what was their motivation then? Well, first, if Jesus said the woman should be stoned, then the Pharisees would run to the Roman governor and say, Jesus is trying to undermine the authority of Rome and condemn a woman to death. Secondly, if Jesus said she couldn't be stoned because of the Roman law, then the Pharisees would have accused Jesus of being an agent of Rome, and everybody hated Rome. It was one of those things where they were trying to put Jesus into a place where he couldn't win or lose. And they wanted to trap him to bring some kind of charge against him. And since Jesus was a teacher of the law of God, they could have condemned him if he'd have told them, no, we're not going to stone her. Uh, They could have said, well, you're not obeying the law of Moses then. So again, Jesus couldn't win for losing. But they thought that it was the perfect trap for them to catch and discredit Jesus This woman's just a tool. They didn't care about her. They didn't care about Jesus. In their minds, both of them had broken their rules, and therefore both Jesus and this woman needed to be eliminated. Now, again, when you begin to love rules more than you love people, you risk becoming a Pharisee. You know, I've seen churches where that's happened. As a matter of fact, I grew up in one. But I can tell you it's not going to be a problem here at Trinity Faith. And do you know why? Because myself, along with the leadership of this church, understand that while there are rules and those rules are important, people are more important. I was hoping that would get an amen, but... (laughs) Thank you, Jerry. Rules are important, but people are infinitely more important than rules. I remember... Back in the 1980s, some of you who've been around church culture for a while will remember this. I was a, I was a pastor with the Assemblies of God, or credentialed at least with the Assemblies of God, and, and one of the popular televangelists of that day was Jimmy Swaggart. All of you remember Jimmy? And Swaggart had gotten himself caught up in a mess, a certain sin, and... And so the leadership of the Assemblies of God, they sat down with Swaggart, and they explained to him that what he had done was wrong, but if he would consent to get counseling for his wrongdoing, they would work with him to restore him back to the ministry that he been become so successful in. In other words, and they did it right. In other words, what he had done was wrong. What he had done was sinful, But rather than try to destroy him, they valued him as being more important than what the rules were. So they wanted to see him restored. His life and his eternal soul were too important to just condemn him and throw him away like a piece of trash. This is really one of the important lessons, I believe, that God teaches us in His Word. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse number 9, the Apostle Peter says it this way, The Lord, and I'm thankful for this, is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. How many of you are thankful for that this morning? So the first thing that tripped up the Pharisees was that they loved the rules more than they loved people. Rules were important, people weren't. The second trap that warped the thinking of the Pharisees was that their agendas became God's agenda, at least in their minds. You need to understand, these Pharisees saw Jesus as being an enemy of their God. Their God was on their side... So, therefore, anyone who was opposed to them had to be opposing God. Now, imagine that. They're talking about the Son of the living God. We know that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, right? But their agenda was so important that they put Jesus in a place of being opposed to God. And their thinking was so captivated by it that it became a trap. I once had a man in, in leadership position in a church where we pastored, had a similar mindset. Um, and I want to be careful how I say this because I don't, I don't want to sound critical anyway. I just want to give you the facts. This man's agenda was to control any and everything that was done in the church. He was the chairman of the board. His wife had been elected the church treasurer for the church. He was also outside of the church, this, and I don't know what they call him, so I'll just say it this way he was a high ranking poobah in the Freemasonry. <laughs> okay? And without getting in, going any further into that, if you've ever researched the inner workings of, of Freemasonry, control is a huge part of their agenda, but that's a story for another sermon. But this, this church leader had the mindset that if he saw something as being moral or true, then God automatically did too. And the other side of the coin was if he saw something and thought that it was immoral, then surely God must think it's wrong. So, it created a problem. Now, much like many churches, that church had one bank account with numerous funds representing each group in the church. For example, the, the, the women's group had funds that they had raised that went into this account. The men's group had funds that they had raised that went into this one account. Uh, the youth had funds that they had raised that went into this same account. The children, on and on. All the funds in that account were designated to some particular group to use as, the, as needed. So, Brenda and I took the youth to Dallas to see a Dallas Mavericks basketball game and to to eat at the Hard Rock Cafe in downtown Dallas. Before we got to the cafe, we advised the kids on how much they could spend for their meal. But as kids often do, they ordered their meals, and the total bill for every one of us there came back $11.49 more than what the youth fund had available to use from that church bank account. Are you with me? $11.49 more than what the youth had raised, but it was all in the same bank account. So, having been given a blank check by the church to pay for the meal, I wrote the check for the exact amount of the meal, knowing that it exceeded our funds by $11.49. And trust me when I tell you that there were literally thousands and thousands of dollars in the one account that had all of these funds. So when I got to church the next morning, I told the church treasurer, who was this man's wife, the amount of the check that I had written. When she informed her husband of it, he then secretly called a church business meeting to be held after the service that morning to report to the congregation that i their pastor had written a hot check <laughs> now in order to appreciate what i or in order to unappreciate what i just said you see for several months i had sensed that that i was in the way of this man's agenda his agenda of controlling every aspect of the church And so he saw this, me writing a check for $11.49 more than what the youth had available, he saw it as an opportunity to shame me into leaving as pastor. Or even better yet, maybe the church membership would ask me to leave because I'd done what I had done. Well, long story much shorter. Everyone in the church knew... That it wasn't a hot check that I had written. It was just a small amount over the funds that the youth had raised. Now, let me answer the question that's in your mind. Why did I write the check for $11.49 more than what the youth had available? Because I wanted to watch the Dallas Mavericks instead of washing dishes. And it turns out that this hastily called business meeting after the service resulted in it being the final day that this man and his wife were a part of that church. In fact, after they were gone, it was discovered by the rest of the church leadership that the two of them had been pocketing all the cash that came in through the Sunday morning offerings. Recording only the checks just so that they could paint a worsening financial condition of the church under my leadership. His agenda became God's agenda, at least in his way of thinking. Now, it's a, it's a sad story, but it's a great story to illustrate what I'm telling you. You see, when that man and his wife first began attending that church, I really liked them. But i got to tell you, they eventually became a real pain. He believed that whatever decision he made had to be God's decision. Because after all, he had been elected to this position of chairman of the board. And so if God had placed him in that position, God must have wanted him to enforce his will on any and everything. Hear me on this. That can happen to anybody. Preachers, elders, deacons, Sunday school teachers, on and on. You can end up making Jesus your enemy by substituting your agenda for his. And if you're not careful, you'll not even realize that you've done it. Now... Do those chairs have seat belts? Because you might want to fasten them here for just a couple of minutes. <laughs> There's a symptom of this dangerous type of attitude, and that symptom ought to be like one of those road signs flashing red with the words, don't go there. But what is that symptom of becoming like the Pharisees? How many of you are ready for what I'm getting ready to say? Not very many. When you get mad because people aren't listening to you and you feel that your opinions are being ignored, you are on the verge of becoming a Pharisee. Or maybe I should explain it like this. When things aren't going your way, which is, of course, God's way at church or at home or at your job, and you begin to get really angry that others aren't listening to you because your agenda is the right one and they're all wrong. And them being wrong makes you mad. That's the symptom. If that happens, friends, pay attention because it's a danger sign that you're becoming like a Pharisee. Now I have one last point. How many of you are glad I'm moving on from that? The first trap warped the Pharisees was that their minds, their rules were more important than people. The second trap was that their agenda agenda in their minds was God's agenda. And the third trap was that Pharisees believed their sins could be covered up as long as they kept the rules. Do you hear the hypocrisy in that? They felt that keeping enough rules would make them look good enough even though they really weren't good. Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter number 23. In verses 27 and 28, Jesus condemned this by saying, Woe to you, scribes, teachers of the law, and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. So, you also appear righteous to others, but within you, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You see, the Pharisees had convinced themselves that if they could look good on the outside, that was as good as being good on the inside. Now, I, I, I know nothing about magic but I've been told that in magic, the magician's secret is called the art of misdirection. And I'll try to explain it as best I can. I read this off of, off of the internet, so take it for what it's worth. I'm told that a good ma- magician will fool you by getting you to look at his right hand. And all the while, you're holding a coin in the palm of your left hand down here. But he's drawing attention with his right hand, Right? Essentially, they fool you that beginning, by, by causing you to think that one hand is more important than the other. Discreetly, you're waving the unimportant hand down here. Now, as terrible an illustration as I just gave you, that's what happens when people become like Pharisees. They fool themselves into thinking that obeying certain rules can be just as good as being... Righteous before God. This is the important thing down here. But what they're showing you is up here. Are you with me? They're distracting you from the real thing by showing you something that's a fake. I've heard a lot of churches, not this one. Where the churchgoers do what a lot of other worshipers do after Church. What do we do after church? A lot of us go out to eat, right? But oftentimes, once they get to the restaurant, they're rude and selfish to the waitresses. Now, why would they do that? Well, subconsciously, it's because we've been to church and you haven't. Hello? We've been to church and you haven't. We've kept the rules by going to church, so they can justify being inconsiderate and unchristian down here. Are you with me? Their rule keeping offsets their sinfulness, and they feel justified in their actions. Let me give you another example. I've heard of ch- of, a, of churches, not this one, where the people absolutely hate each other. The, but, Coincidentally, this same church that I was telling you about with the church leader a few moments ago, there were two families in that church that had despised each other for the entire existence of that church. Brenda and I jokingly referred to them as the Hatfields and McCoys. One family would only associate with the other family only when absolutely necessary when they weren't around the other family they'd talk about the other family they did not like each other (laughs) and uh, I don't know that it was this severe but I've I've heard of churches where people like those Hatfields and McCoys would one group would sit on one side of the church and the other group would sit on the other but here's the problem You know what they would do every once in a while on Sunday? They would all gather around the table of communion as a church body. It's okay to be filled with hatred and bitterness in their mind because they've kept the rule. They've obeyed Jesus by taking of the Lord's Supper, but they didn't have a good word to say about each other. I think I had that opposite They did the communion, but they didn't have a good word to say about each other. The art of misdirection. Keeping the rules, drawing God's attention, obtaining God's blessings, while their sinful behavior is done on the side where surely not even God could see it. Wow. What blindness. He does see it. 1 Corinthians 13 talks about this same kind of pharisaical symptom. It's the familiar chapter to many of you. Paul says in verse 1, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am Nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love I gain nothing. Now you want to see how this works in practical terms. If I can speak in the tongues of men and angels but have no love in my heart what am I? Nothing. Nothing. If I go to church every Sunday but don't show love, I am nothing. If I teach Sunday school or work in the sound booth or work in the kitchen but have not love, what am I? I think you're getting it. If I give all my money to the poor but really don't love people, what am I? Did that tambourine annoy you? Me too. And as soon as I get through with this illustration, it's going into hiding where no one will ever be able to find it in church again. You see, the tambourine has the annoying sound like that of a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. That's what Paul is trying to get across to us here in 1 Corinthians 13. If you get everything else right, if you have all your Christian ducks in a row, but you don't have love for others, you are nothing. You see, people who try to live by the rules think that they can get God's attention by keeping the rules. Again, up here. But they don't realize that God can hear the rattle of sin that they're trying to hide. It's amazing to me when I shake that tambourine how much it reminds me of a rattlesnake's rattle in more ways than one. Pharisees got most of the rules right, but they had no love for others. And as a result, they were annoying to God. Can I just say this? If you don't love other people, you are an annoyance to God. That's what Paul's saying. Now again, one last point I'm going to make and then I'm going to hush up. There are people who hate the concept of Pharisees so badly and and, and trying to avoid ever becoming like a Pharisee that tragically they go too far in the other direction, if you know what I mean. Uh, they, they, don't, they don't like this idea of a morality police. And, and so they, they want to get rid of all the rules so that they can never be accused of becoming like a Pharisee. It offends them when people stay, take a stand for morality and make them feel uncomfortable in their sin. Now again, this is the opposite side of the coin that, from what we've been talking about. For example, they get upset when a follower of Jesus tries to explain... Why, why abortion or homosexuality are wrong. They don't like to be put in a box. So they'll quote Jesus and they'll say something like, Judge not lest you be judged. Let me tell you something, friends. They'll also quote Jesus from the same passage that we read this morning. Let him who is without sin among you cast the first stone. They're trying to suggest that Jesus never taught us to judge sin. Wrong. If it's sin, it's sin. And it doesn't matter whether you're okay with it or whether you believe it. If the Bible says it's sin, it is sin. And it doesn't need to be judged because it's already been judged in the Word of God. It says that it's wrong. They're trying to say that Jesus taught us to never judge anybody, that we're we're never to take a stand against some of the things in this world because they don't like morality police. But friends, you read the Old Testament. See what the Old Testament has to say. That's exactly what the prophets of God were. You take prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Malachi. They were telling, all of them were telling the people what their sins were. And they were warning them that in order to escape the judgment of God, they needed to turn away from their sin. But unlike Pharisees of the New Testament, the prophets of old really took no pleasure in confronting sins of the people. Declaring God's judgment. Jeremiah himself was called the weeping prophet. Do you know why he was called the weeping prophet? Because it hurt him so much to have to face people with their sins. He and the other prophets were repeatedly warning the nation of Israel of God's coming wrath, but they didn't find any pleasure in those warnings. And you contrast that to the New Testament. The Pharisees of the New Testament would tell you in no uncertain terms that you are going to hell and it was easy to see that they were glad that you were going to hell. I read the two-story of a woman who was walking out of church with her four-year-old son and he said, Mom, I'm not going to sin anymore. She said, Well, that's nice. Why have you decided to not sin? And he answered, Jesus said, if you don't sin, you can throw the first stone. I want to throw the first stone. <laughs> you see, that little boy wanted to, take, he, he wanted to take pleasure in casting stones, but Jesus didn't. Do you understand that the only sinless one standing in that circle in John chapter number 8, a Pharisees and adulterous woman in the presence of Jesus, the only sinless one in the circle was Jesus. The only one. And he chose to not throw a stone at her. Why? Because he loved her. Because he loved her. Notice what he says to the woman. He said, woman, where are your accusers or where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus said, I will not condemn you. Jesus didn't come to condemn anyone. You've heard of John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. An even better one is verse 17, or equally as good. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Condemnation is not the path to go. Jesus didn't come to condemn us for our sins. He came to stand in the gap and take our place on a cross. You see, friends, there is a rule, and it applies to every one of us. The wages of sin is death. Death. Romans 6.23, the sinful must die. Every one of us, before Jesus and after Jesus, have sinned, and someone had to die to remove that sin, and so Jesus died in our place. It's just the oddest thing, though, in this story. Compared to all the other stories about Jesus and his encounters with sinful people there's one thing that really jumps off the page at me as I look at John chapter number 8 and the story of the adulterous woman. It's the only place in all four Gospels where Jesus did not tell someone that their sins were forgiven. Every other place he would say something like this, go in peace, your sins are forgiven, right? He didn't say that to this woman. This time he tells this woman, go and from now on sin no more. Why didn't Jesus tell her that she'd been forgiven? Because she hadn't come to Jesus for forgiveness. She'd been dragged there against her will. In her heart, she was an adulteress and she was destined to go to hell for her sins. But Jesus' words were, in essence, telling her to leave that life. Leave that lifestyle of sin. Repent of what she'd been doing and stop doing it. Why? Because the day will come, friends, when Jesus is going to come again and he will condemn everyone who lives lives of sin. So here's the deal. We're called to pick up our cross daily and follow him, right? That means that just like this woman, we have to die to our sinful ways. How many of you have ever sinned? How many of you ever felt bad knowing that you sinned? Absolutely. It's called conviction. And hopefully that conviction drew you to your knees and and confessed to God your your wrongdoing and, and said, God, I want to repent of my actions and please forgive me. And in His mercy and in His grace, He brings forgiveness. That's what Paul brings out in Romans chapter 6, the first four verses. He says, what shall we say to them? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us have been, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. I love that. I love that the stain of sin no longer is a cloud for me. But I have been set free from my sin, never to be held against me ever again by God. So, what's my message? What's the theme of this sermon series? Unless you and I come to Jesus, being serious about dying to our past, and by the way, every one of us have one of those, we can't be forgiven. Without repentance, there is no forgiveness. Now, that doesn't mean that we're never going to sin ever again, but it does mean that the closer we get to walk with God, the less likelihood is that we're going to sin. Are you with me? The closer and closer you get to God, the less likely it is that you're going to find yourself in sin. And that will happen because you've made up your mind that you are going to die to sin and not let it rule in your life any longer. Worship team, would you come, please? Friends, it will happen because you've set your heart toward God. You've expressed a desire to God to turn away from the past, old things passing away, all things becoming new. Can I just ask, how many does that sound like a really good idea? Old things passing away and all things becoming new. Thank you, Jesus, for fresh starts. Thank you that we don't have to be tied to our past failures, our past flaws, but that we can walk in newness of life. Free from the past, with hope for the future. Lord Jesus, as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I I again praise and thank you that there were some young people this past week at church camp that made this decision that they weren't going to be governed by their past or even their present, but they were going to confess their sins, repent of them, and begin to walk in newness of life. And Lord, as wonderful as that is, there may be some in this room this morning who need to confess to You, to repent of their sinful ways, And get a fresh start. So Holy Spirit I'm asking you to do what only you can do. And that is draw men and women. And boys and girls in this moment. Not only to Jesus but to the cross from which he hung. From which he bled and died. And whose blood can wash away every stain that sin has left. In Jesus' name. Again, heads bowed, eyes closed. And you're telling this to Jesus. I'm not even going to open my eyes today and see who responds, if anyone. But you're here this morning and you're in need of a fresh start. You want to leave the past in the past. You want to have right standing before God. You want to have a future. You want to have hope. Jesus is waiting for you to raise your hand this morning. Just lift it to Him and tell Him. Jesus, I want a new start. I confess my sinfulness to You. I have a desire, Lord, to turn from my wickedness and walk in newness of life. And in and of myself, I don't have the power to do that. But Jesus, you do. So Jesus, forgive me. Take away my sin. And take up residence in my heart today. In Jesus' name. I'm confident this morning, because I, like many of you, have experienced this. That when we make a request of Jesus, much like the one I just asked those who might have raised their hands to make, to confess their sin, repent of their wickedness, and walk in newness of life, ask Jesus to forgive them of their sins and to give them a future and hope, I'm confident that Jesus has enough power to do that. Amen? How many of you have experienced the fact that Jesus is enough to give you a future and a hope? Let's stand to our feet and sing with Jacob a song that we sang earlier.